Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as we continue in our study, we pick up in verse 8, where the preacher says, If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity or empty or meaningless. When goods increase, verse 11, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. In chapter five of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has made observations about human words in verses one through seven and human wickedness now in verses eight through twelve. So he's going to go from human words to human wickedness to human wretchedness in verses 13 through 70 and then to human wisdom in verses 18 through 20. In the first seven verses, Solomon, you'll remember, for those of you who are with me, he entered the temple and he saw the foolishness of careless worship, of empty prayer, of worthless vows. Now the preacher leads the temple, and he's going to go into the marketplace. As he enters the marketplace, he's going to set forth three timeless principles on the subject of economy and money. Clearly, when Solomon speaks about financial propriety, we would do well to listen. Some of you grew up in a and at the same time that I did, and there was a popular television commercial that came on that said, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. When Solomon spoke, people listened. He had fabulous wealth. But for the person who is locked in a battle with greed... Or the person who's locked in a battle with materialism. These notes become of special importance for the person who is asking and answering the question of whether or not having money becomes the most important thing in the world. He's going to answer that wealth he's going to point out, often brings governmental leadership, and sometimes that leadership leads to the oppression of the poor. Greed and materialism have no built-in safeguards or satisfying limits. With an increased supply of money and possession comes an increased number of people problems and money problems. And so, so here is Solomon. Remember, he is at asking and answering the question about is there meaning of life apart from God is there meaning in the temple is there meaning in the marketplace he leaves the temple he goes to city hall the seat of municipal government where he witnesses corrupt politicians 
oppressing the poor. Now, he's already talked about this issue in chapter three in verses 16 and 17, where he said, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. And then in chapter four, verses one through three, then I returned and considered all the oppression that's done under the sun and look the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter on the side of their oppressors. There is power, but they have no comforter. He's addressed this issue in the past, but he reminds us in the present about the problem of oppression in verses eight and nine. As a matter of fact, he says, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. But we do. He's basically saying. Does it shock you and surprise you that there are corrupt politicians? And we go, no. Well, yeah. Now, here's part of the point that he's making. With wealth comes influence and power, right? In every age, the wealthy could purchase and control territories and provinces and nations. But clearly, Solomon's problem isn't with the wealthy, or even wealth. What he's pointing out is something very different. Now, I want you to consider just for a moment. Clearly, there are times when wealth doesn't always bring desired results. Meg Whitman in California spent about $250 million, I understand, of her own money to become elected to a California Senate seat. Did she win? She still lost. Is it possible in our culture and society to spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars and still lose the election? Apparently. But here's the point. In history, the wealthy were often the people who made the rules, who made the regulations that the less wealthy have to follow and obey. And so as Solomon is going out and he's seeing the government and he's seeing the government officials and he sees that governments add layer upon layer of bureaucrats and red tape, part of the bureaucracy and the red tape makes leadership Further and further and further from the poor so that the person making the rules and the regulations and then the people who have to follow the rules and the regulations are there's a huge distance between the two. So part of the point is. Leadership is inaccessible. The voice of the weak and the voice of the poor and the voice of the powerless become fainter and fainter and fainter until their voice is just a whisper. So that nobody can hear what's going on in their life and in their their circumstances. As a matter of fact, the NIV translates this pretty well. It says one official is eyed by a higher one. Over them both are others higher still. The poor man's complaint is buried in a sea of paperwork. Until it's not even heard. The Bible condemns government officials who violate the law by using their authority 
to help themselves rather than the people that they're assigned to help. This sounds like it's this week's news. This book written thousands of years ago brings out the point. Is it possible that people in leadership can become corrupt? Part of the point of the passage is that the officials who are paid to hold lower officials accountable are themselves corrupted by bribery and graft and favoritism. And clearly people need, they want, they need honest officials who listen to their constituents and who won't rob their constituents, but will faithfully execute the office that God has entrusted to them. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, it says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So the Bible doesn't have one set of rules for the rich and one set of rules for the poor. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17, it says, you shall not pervert justice. Do the stranger or the fatherless. Nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. So there is the expectation that has been communicated concerning a faithful way to govern people. And the preacher says, do not marvel. Don't be surprised. When government leaders and corrupt politicians act in a corrupt fashion. Don't let it shock you. And then we are, aren't we? We fall prey to the politician's promise. There's a commercial on TV now where this politician comes up and says, I'm going to double your taxes and I'm going to put you in a position of spiraling debt so that your children will have to pay the bill forever and ever. Amen. And all of a sudden you hear people are just quiet. Yeah, it's like, what? I mean, politicians don't talk that way. Do politicians normally say... Whatever you have in your pocket, I'm going to take out of your pocket. They don't normally talk that way. Here's here's what they say. Tell me if I'm lying. I'll fight for you. Okay. Have you ever heard a single candidate run on the promise, I'll raise your taxes, I'll line my pockets, I'll provide less than adequate service, and I'll still put our nation in a downward spiral of ever-increasing debt. Have you ever heard a single politician say that? No. But here's part of the point. Just like there is empty religion, and just like there are limitations to human wisdom... There are also limitations to human government. You see, people make a gigantic mistake. And the gigantic mistake is they assign attributes of government that only belong to God. Government exists because it was created by God. Because the alternative of chaos is unacceptable. But can government forgive your sin? Can government reconcile you to the Father? Can government create a mechanism whereby you can have a right relationship with God? The answer is no. It was never intended to do that. 
And we sometimes forget that there is a God. And by the way, is there a sovereign God who is moving and working and planning and fulfilling his plans and purposes on the planet Earth? There is. Is there a sovereign God who is at work in every nation on the face of the planet as he moves the people on the surface of the earth closer and closer and closer to his specific and final and dramatic conclusion to human history. You know, the Bible has a name for that. It's called the providence of God. Someone once called providence as God's hands Behind the headlines, D. DeWitt Talmadge writes, quote, despots may plan and armies may watch or march. The congresses of the nations may seem to think that they're adjusting all the affairs of the world. But the mighty men of the earth are only the dust of the chariot wheels in God's providence. I like that. It's as if all of human leaders everywhere in the world are the little dirt clods that get caught up in the wheels of God's chariots as the future is fast approaching and as God's plans and purposes will be fulfilled. King David wrote, the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations, it says in Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight. Proverbs 8, 15 and 16 says, by me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles and the judges of the earth. By the way, in context, he's speaking of the personification of wisdom. In other words, who or what is the personification of wisdom? According to Colossians chapter 2, Jesus Christ, the Lord, is the embodiment of everything that is wise and everything that is pure and everything that is just. We're making a tremendous mistake if we think that the highest court or the Supreme Court or the convocation of earthly tribunals is the ultimate final word. Here's what the Bible says. There's a God in heaven. And he is just the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, according to the Bible has caused and will continue to cause all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are the called according to the purpose. We are not machines. We are not victims. We are not caught in the machinations of what human beings have purposed. But the reality is the Bible makes it abundantly clear that those Who know and love and serve the Lord are known by him. The Bible goes so far as to instruct us to be excellent citizens. The Bible says, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. We learned about this on Sunday in first Peter, chapter two, where it says, submit to the ordinances of man, whether to kings as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who are doing good. The Bible says Christians are to be excellent citizens. And why are we excellent citizens? 
Number one, because we pray for our officials. We pray for our president. We pray for our elected officials. We pray for our appointed officials. We pray for each and every person that God has set in the circumstances that God has set them. We pray that God will give them wisdom and judgment, that God will do what is necessary in order for them to rule rightly and according to the plans and purposes of God. We pray for them. We obey the ordinances, which is the law. And then in verse nine, it says, moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. In other words, the king may be benefiting from living in the lap of luxury. Clearly, the dishonest and perverse practices of corrupt leaders is wrong. But government itself is supposed to be organized to provide for the common good, to ensure tranquility, to provide the common defense of citizens, to promote righteousness and justice, to punish the evildoer. Government exists, like I said, because the unpleasant alternative of anarchy is not what we want. Here's what we want. A government that is honest and efficient, but we have a problem. All human government happens to take place from human beings. And human beings are limited. Lord Acton wrote to Bishop Crichton in 1887 a very famous sentence. Most of you are going to know it. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. What's the exception, of course? Is God absolutely powerful? Is he incapable of being corrupt? He is incapable of being corrupt. There is a singular, wonderful, righteous, perfect Lord. But if the preacher would have been around to hear Lord Acton writing to Bishop Crichton, he would have said, Amen. Abraham Lincoln jokingly said, you can tell what God thinks of money when you see the people he gives it to. <laughs> We're tempted to think that money and power and influence brings justice and righteousness. But the preacher watches money and power influence, pervert, corrupt justice and righteousness. And so he's making a point, and the point is, it could possibly be that money isn't the answer. And so he talks about the problem of dissatisfaction in verse 10. He says, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Now, Solomon has given us a peek, a glimpse into the problem of wealth. He spoke of these things in chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. In the ancient world, there was what was called the golden rule. And the golden rule went, whoever has the gold rules. That's exactly right. And so some people were tempted to believe that if they could become participants 
in the influencing factors that they could make a difference. But again, remember, the problem is that money can't buy forgiveness of sin. It can't buy eternal life. Someone once said that if you treat money like your God, it will plague you like the devil. Clearly, Solomon, like I said, he's not condemning wealth in and of himself. He is, by all accounts, the wealthiest human being possibly at the time that this, that this book was written. He is arguably the wealthiest person in the world. And so, again, Solomon's criticism isn't with those who have money, but those who love money, those who love abundance and those who love increase. And it becomes a reflection of what we already know in the New Testament for the love of money is a root of every kind of evil. W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote, quote, making money is necessary for daily living, but money making is apt to degenerate into money loving. And then the deceitfulness of riches enters in and then it spoils the spiritual life. So he is he's asking a question that many people have asked over and over again. Does money buy contentment? What do you think the answer is? Well, if that were true, then the wealthiest people in the world should be the most content people in the world. Has that been your experience? Do profits and abundance whet the appetite for more profits and more abundance? I'm going to guess that it's possible, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to guess that it's possible to have an abundance and be satisfied. But let me point something out to you. That the source of the satisfaction isn't in the accumulation. Remember what Jesus said? What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and he lose his soul? The point that the preacher seems to be making is that the love of money, greed, covetousness, the lust is like a dark hole that consumes and destroys and then begins to pull everything in. I've been watching the Science Channel and they're speculating that at the center of every single galaxy is a black hole. And according to the physicist, the black hole is almost like a perforation in existence itself. And everything, stars, planets, light itself, goes into this vast vacuum. If you come to what's called the event horizon, no matter how big or large or powerful, it goes into this event horizon never to return. And that's how... Covetousness and greed and materialism, they don't, it doesn't seem to have safe borders. There's no safeguards. There's no satisfying limits. And so that becomes the very definition of both the Old Testament and the New Testament word for covetousness. Some, you hear that word a lot, and some of you may not know what that word means. The word covet means to want more and more of what you already have enough of. That's the very definition of covetousness. It means to want more and more and more of what you already have enough of. So the Bible 
has a lot to say about the dangers of making money a God. What is the danger of loving money, of making sacrifices for money, of investing all your time and energy and talent into the acquisition and accumulation of money? Remember what Jesus said in the New Testament, you can't serve God and mammon. Either you will love the one and cling to the other or you will despise the one. A man can't serve two masters. Clearly, money can bring certain things, physical security, a place to live, food to eat, generosity. But think about it. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, what faith in the Lord does for the Christian. Money does for many unbelievers, not every unbeliever, but for many unbelievers. In other words, what faith in the Lord does for Christians, money does for many unbelievers. How often we hear people say, quote, well, money may not be the number one thing in life, but it's way ahead of what could possibly be number two. But when you ask and you answer that question, if that's true, what faith in the Lord does for the Christian money does for the unbeliever. What does money do for the unbeliever? A sense of security, a sense of sufficiency, a sense of independence. Clearly, money doesn't solve every problem. It does solve many problems. And so the writer goes to the next issue the problem of frustration, he's he's going to end this particular section in verses 11 and 12 by saying. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes in verse 12? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. In other words, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners? It was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said money costs a lot. <laughs> the preacher knew that the wealth came that with wealth came more people with their hands open. Have you ever seen a professional athlete or a musician or a movie star? And you hear about their wonderful story of going from poverty and rags and they move from poverty to wealth. And with the wealth comes this incredible entourage of people. When our president or the secretary of state or or government officials travel to foreign nations, they bring with them a host of assistants and guards and support staff. Wealth is often accompanied by more friends, but with wealth comes more worries and more anxieties. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse four, it says wealth makes many friends, but the poor 
is separated from his friend. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12, it says, The sleep of the laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So the, the passage might be paraphrased like this. An honest man who works an honest day upon the land will be content with what he has. He'll sleep in perfect peace each night, but riches keep the wealthy man awake. He frets about his debts, how his investments will turn out, and if he'll have enough so he can get some more. What vanity. The Japanese have a saying, and I'm trying to remember how it goes, but it goes something like wealth is like digging in the dirt with a needle. There seems to be, it's really difficult to make money, but it's really simple to lose money. (laughs) The stress and the strain of having to be responsible for so many people can sometimes take its toll on the mental, emotional, and physical well-being of the person who's responsible for so many people. And that's been my experience. The reality is, and again, it's a wonderful privilege. You know, if you've ever been a, a business owner or, or, or a small businessman and God uses you in that way, or even a, 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 not necessarily a small businessman, but God creates a mechanism where, whereby wealth is formed and jobs are created and families are ministered to and mortgages are paid and the bills are paid. But you begin to realize something that with each person that you hire comes this tremendous responsibility, doesn't it? What employer likes to fire people? I mean, most I I guess it's possible that there are there are Donald Trump's of the world who just love to go. You're fired. And they love that. But I think most people don't. They create a business. They create a climate whereby wealth is generated and made and families are supported. But the reality is you become there's this sense of responsibility. There's a sense of responsibility that takes place because you realize that so many people are dependent upon you. Your wife, your children, your family, your friends. And the stress and the strain. Keeps people awake at night. It can take its toll mentally and emotionally and physically for the person who's responsible for so many lives and so many people. And so the principle, of course, is with the increased supply of money and possessions come an accelerated number of people and worries. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I wish I could have that kind of worry. But what the preacher is trying to do is he's trying to create a mechanism where there's it's sort of an economic myth buster. Here's myth number one in verse 10. Wealth brings satisfaction. True or false? False. Oh, here's what I would say. Wealth brings satisfaction. True. In the sense of. Wealth brings a certain kind of satisfaction that's different than what poverty brings. Does wealth bring permanent satisfaction? Spiritual satisfaction? 
Does wealth bring the satisfaction of knowing of a life that's lived right before God? Does it does it bring the satisfaction of knowing that your life is right before God or that your sins are forgiven or that your ultimate destination is heaven? Does wealth do that? No. Myth number two, money solves every problem. Verse 11. Does money solve every problem? Does it solve many problems? Yes, it does. We we, we would be incorrect if we said that money doesn't solve any problems. But does money solve every problem? It all depends on what the problem is, huh? Myth number three, verse 12. Wealth brings peace of mind. True or false? It is false. Now, here's what I would say. Wealth may bring a certain kind of peace of mind. But again, will it bring the kind of peace of mind that people desire most? That's the point. Later, the preacher is going to bring one more myth to the reader's attention. He's going to explode the myth that wealth provides ultimate security in verses 13 through 17. I told you about my grandmother having her 100 year uh, birthday. And my Nona said, the person who has the most birthdays lives the longest. It's really true, isn't it? The person who has the most birthday lives the longest. It's true. You know what? My Nona doesn't complain about getting old. She celebrates the things that she can do, not the things that she can no longer do. You know, there are many ways to acquire wealth, at least three that I've been able to come up with. We can work for it. We can steal it. <laughs> or we can receive it as a gift. Now, ultimately, Solomon saw the blessings of life as God's gift to those who work and see it and accept it as a favor from God. We're going to skip ahead just a little bit. We're going to come back to it. But in verse 19, just read it for I'm going to read it to you as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This. This is a gift of God. But there's an irony to wealth. And let me help you understand the irony. Is it possible to love money and want money? Even if you have very little of it or none of it at all. So you're laughing because I think you know the answer. Wow, I guess it. Is it possible for the person who has no money whatsoever to love it and want it? That's the irony. It's not necessary to have a lot of wealth to fall in love with money. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because greed and materialism is not something that is specific to the wealthy. 
greed and materialism can affect anyone at any time. It's possible to have no money and still love money. The danger, of course, is to make money do something that money was never intended to do. Money was never intended to bring you into a right relationship with God and Christ. Money was never intended to bring you to a place of cleansing or healing or righteousness or reconciliation to God. That's the point. For some, the more people gain, the more they want. The more we have, the more we spend. And so so this is this becomes sort of like the final point of this particular section. The more they gain, the more they want, the more we have, the more we spend with wealth comes worry. And so the preacher goes, hmm, hmm. How am I supposed to think about all of these things? Remember in the New Testament, or actually in the book of Proverbs, it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so, once again, the preacher has given us a rundown in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Life's oppressions and inequalities in chapter four, the few, the, the exhortations in light of this experience, re, mere religious practices can't satisfy in verses one through eight, the futility of riches in verses nine through twelve. And all of the point that he's trying to push us to is he's going to talk about the futility of life in chapter six. And he's going to talk about human wisdom's better findings in chapter seven and the importance of obeying rulers in chapter eight. And despite wisdom, death is certain in chapter nine. But over and over and over and over again, he's going to bring you to a place where you're willing to consider this. That when you contrast and compare your life, your life lived for God versus your life lived apart from God. The reality when you come eventually to the end of the book, and I keep saying it over and over again in chapter 12, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, obey his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I'm going to suggest something to you when it says keep his commandments, it it implies a definite revelation for the commandments are something that came from God and not from human beings. So the big question in Solomon's mind and the big answer that I think that he wants you to ultimately lock into is. Has God revealed himself in the person 
of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, it says God spoke in different times in different ways in times past through the prophets. But he has spoken to us in these last days through his own dear son, Jesus. So for the person who's saying, I'm willing to hear what God has to say. What does God have to say? The New Testament, the whole New Testament is devoted to that answer. It's Jesus has something important to say to the person who's willing to listen to what he has to say. God loves you. He's willing to forgive your sin and reconcile you to the father and the emptiness and the longing and the disappointment and the dark hole that's in the the middle of many people's soul can be filled in the person of Jesus Christ. So chapter five is going to continue to unfold and we'll take the other sections the next time we get together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this book. What does it profit a human being if they gain everything and they lose their own soul? It seems to me that the real answer that we have, the real question we have to ask is, how can a person Keep their soul. And Heavenly Father, we know that the answer is that the person who would have their life would lose it. Lord, we know that broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many are there who go on that road. Narrow is the way for those who find life. And few there are who find it. Lord, we know that it is a It's a contrary way of thinking and it's a contrary way of behaving. But Lord, we know that in you, in Jesus. Is everything that pertains to life and and godliness. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person who finds themselves in a very difficult place in their life. Whether it's something personal or professional, whether they're unemployed or underemployed. Whether, whether they're looking for that specific task that you called them to. Lord, I pray that you would reveal it to them. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart. Lord, I pray that they would be willing to go in the direction that you're calling them. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts and lives. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to do what you would have us to do. To love you and to obey you. And Lord, that when we hear your voice and you ask us to get up, we'll get up. And when you ask us to go, we'll go. And when you ask us to believe that that's exactly what we'll do, we'll believe. And when you ask us to behave, that that's exactly what we'll do. But more than that, Lord, we pray that we would know you more and more as you reveal yourself in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.